day and welcome to Overdrive, a program that roams through the world of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have some news stories where we look at three significant features on the latest car sales figures. And we have three feature interviews. We mentioned last week some of the interesting feedback we'd had on the unusual, perhaps weird, concept cars at the Chicago Motor Show. There were some insightful comments and some monosyllabic muttering, such as, I hate it. So this week we talked to Brian Smith on what the purpose of concept cars are. What do manufacturers want to get out of making vehicles that are not part of the current style? And how do people react? And Barry Green continues reporting on his odyssey of going on great drives in great motor cars in the best places around the world. This time it is the Clausen Pass in Glossglockman, Austria. And Alan Zervis and I review the oh-so-powerful Audi RS7. You can always search for and listen to past programs at drivenmedia.com.au or as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. And of course there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City Driven Media. So let's get going, let's start with the news. Sales of new vehicles in Australia, as supplied by VFAX, showed continued growth. In July, over 84,000 were delivered, an increase of 16% on the same month last year. 2020 was obviously affected by COVID, and so this growth is more about getting back to normal. It is encouraging, however, to see the sales of July this year are higher than the same month in pre-COVID 2019. The impact of recent lockdowns may have started to take effect towards the end of the month. The 16% increase is lower than the year-to-date figure of 26.5%. In New South Wales, which has moved into protracted lockdown, sales declined by nearly 2%. It is important to remember that the numbers represent those cars that could be delivered. Without the current supply chain difficulties, the numbers might have been higher. The Corolla has been a hero car for Toyota here and around the world, not in a high-performance flashy sense, but rather the epitome of strong, efficient and dependable Japanese practicality. But passenger car sales in Australia are in decline, while SUVs and utes are rising strongly. At the end of 2017, the Toyota Corolla was still the number one selling car, although two utes, the Hilux and the Ranger, had moved into second and third position, displacing Corolla competitors the Mazda 3 and the Hyundai i30. In January 2021, Corolla had slipped to 6th best-selling car, and by June it was down in 10th place. But July saw a reversal of that trend. The Corolla, packed with features but not the cheapest in its class, had climbed back to 3rd place of all vehicles. COVID has seen a push towards low-priced cars, or in this case, dependable brand names. Isuzu Ute is a brand in Australia with an unfortunate name. They do have a Ute, but they also have an SUV. Yet with just these two models, in the month of July they have become the eighth best-selling brand in Australia, selling more cars than Nissan or Mercedes or Subaru and way more than Honda. Motoring expert Paul Morell from Senior Driver Oz is impressed with the way they went about finding areas to improve. Isuzu really did spend a lot of time talking to Australian customers about 
what they wanted, what they weren't happy with, how it could be improved for the Australian market. For example, their research says that at least half of its customers use their vehicles to tow. Of course, and by the way, it's now up to a three and a half ton braked towing capacity. They've done a number of things there that will make that easier to deal with. Apart from all the driver assistance gear, they've made it easier to accessorise a vehicle to tow, for example. And that was motoring expert Paul Morell. Last week, we brought the news of the hugely powerful Audi RS7 wrapped in an elegant four-door fastback sedan body, but with a price tag in the order of a quarter of a million dollars. Peugeot has a similarly styled sedan. It's not nearly as powerful, but it is still a very good example of a vehicle that portrays a very distinctive appearance. By today's standards, it has a reasonable but not outstanding power output from a 1.6-litre turbocharged petrol engine, giving 165 kilowatts and 300 newton metres of torque, which is sufficient for comfortable city driving and non-urban touring. Its advantage is a tear weight of only 1,385 kilograms. With an 8-speed automatic, it comes together for a very credible combined fuel consumption rating of 6.3 litres per hundred. It reflects its European heritage by meeting Euro 6 pollution standards. Currently, the Peugeot 508 Fastback is priced from around $57,500 plus on-road costs. And that has been the news. We mentioned in the news last week some of the concept cars on show at the Chicago Auto Show. One was futuristic, one was much more traditional, or along a traditional theme. Now, Brian Smith, uh, how are you? Well, thank you, David. You? No, not bad, mate. Uh, How would you describe the purpose of a concept vehicle? Yeah, I always think of concept vehicles as um, as trying to build enthusiasm and and spark. so most motor shows, I think, car manufacturers are trying to to show the direction they're going and, and create some excitement and um, and innovation. And, and I think concept cars, you know, we we accept that you know you may never actually see them on the road, but they're a little bit of excitement, a little bit of fun, a little bit of uh, innovation and risk taking to sort of show people that you know this is what the future might look like. I'm not sure if I take them seriously. No, well, they're a bit like an artist's drawing, aren't they? They've always got bigger wheels or lower profile or something about them that probably once the reality of wanting to fit tall people into them makes it a bit different. Yes, yes, I remember what was the Audi, um, the Audi Coupe that had incredibly low roofline in the concept version and even in the in the manufactured version. And uh, I know Dean Oliver struggled to... Inside that car. <laughs> well, the other purpose for them too is to get television coverage. Oh, indeed, yes, yes. You've got to, I guess, yeah, get the cameras and get the people over at your at your booth ooing and ahhing. Why do you think Toyota made the Prius ugly? <laughs> I mean, it was, wasn't it? It it, it, it was it not was? what you would call an elegant car. Yet it it's made its name. It's almost become a generic name for. Not quite for hybrid, but certainly it's it's been the pioneer. It worked, I guess, in that sense. Do you think Toyota made it ugly for that reason? I'm not sure that they were renowned for their design <laughs> at the time that thing was made. Like Toyota appeared to have, have possibly recruited some people who who designed and utensils, <laughs> and 
let them use on the cars. Now, this is a, a this the rhombus comes from a Chinese part of the Toyota family, a Chinese design area, and so possibly that's just the fact that Toyota was not really about design. So, TMEC is uh, Toyota's R&D department in China, and so maybe they are a little more out on the edge and interested in design. Do you remember when I went to that exercise with some design people from Toyota who came out from California and we played with a block of clay and tried shaping that and that? I interviewed the guy and he said at the time there was a corporate directive, no more boring cars. And he immediately said that means, of course, that some people will like them and some people won't. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's a a lot, lot better than being seen as being boring. Well, the... The line in this uh, sort of promotion of this car, which I'm seeing sort of repeated back by all the journalists, is this idea that the target audience for the rhombus is people born after 1990. So they're kind of trying to sort of say that, look, this modernity is a sign of of our new um, setting or our sort of future focus. People born after 1990 are sort of, I guess, in their early 20s, and we know that many younger people aren't buying cars and they're not even getting their licenses. So maybe this is an attempt to sort of you know, get to a younger audience and convince them that Toyota means something to them. You've had uh, some that you, you bought a people mover, didn't you, and, and didn't feel that it lived up to its reputation? I didn't, know. I, I, I did get a seven-seat Peugeot and, uh, yeah. and you know, it had some benefits, but it was, it was not the prestige car that I, I was hoping it would be. Now, car companies often say that they show these cars, then take into account the public reaction. Is that a bit like political leaders? Who was it that <laughs> French politician, Alexander Auguste Ledru Roland? He was the guy who's quoted as saying, there go the masses, I will follow them for I am their leader. <laughs> In all fairness to him, he, he, he married rich, but he, he tried to look after the working class and it was the later French Revolution of 1848, I think. But the, and he might have been misquoted. His his opponents may have given that e- expression and said he did it. But the point being, is leadership now just following the trend? I oh, know, David. We this is how we end up with cars that all look alike, and they really do. <laughs> SUVs, modern SUVs, are just so they're a blancmange of of the same sort of vehicle. They all look the same. So so leadership is acquired, and I think that's where maybe your concept cars are an expression of leadership, and you don't want to necessarily say we're going to water this thing down. I don't imagine many folk are going to say, go wilder, are they? Hmm. What would the response be? It was, you know, it's unlikely to be, you know, go crazy. It's probably more like, I could, I like it, but... I was talking to Barry Green, who's written that uh, lovely book, Volume 1 of Great Drives. He travelled around the world before COVID and saw mates and borrowed things. He was a journo, and uh, he had some fantastic cars over some fantastic drives. But, of course, one of the ones he did was he drove through the centre of London in a Mini because that was the spirit of the time, the zeitgeist. Mm. Of the late 50s, or very late 50s, into the 60s. You remember Spike Milligan had one, and Peter Sellers, and even Princess Margaret. But that's something different altogether. But the point being is that changed the nature of it. Maybe it didn't have to be quite so silly. It was certainly different. The VW Beetle is the same sort of thing, isn't it, David, that, that becomes iconic. 
you mentioned the zeitgeist. Yes, it, it sort of hits the time. Mm. Of course, the the mini now is is like twice as large as the <laughs> as the mini back then. So you know, as our cities have not increased in size and actually become even more constrained in the centres, it seems weird that we're all driving around in in massive um, vehicles. So maybe we're sort of we're not reflecting the zeitgeist. The Beetle was hardly a traditional car in every sense. Engine in the back, air cooled, funny looking. It's amazing that it did so well if you were thinking purely just uh, of looks. It's quirks that appeal. You know, you think of the Fiat 500, you think of the the Citroen, you know, the cockroach-style, DS21-style Citroen. They're, They're statement cars that are kind of unashamedly and kind of quirky, and, and they are memorable vehicles, aren't they? There can be that fashion statement. There can be that leading in fashion. Create your own market. Yeah, that, that goes further. All right, Brian, lovely to talk to you. And concept cars, I think they're interesting. I don't really need to try and state my case on whether my opinion's all that much. I much prefer, like art, to think about the life and times of the art, not just whether I look at a painting and say I like it or not. Got to have a story in it. Thank you, David. It's always a pleasure. That's Brian Smith, who is a transport planner of note, but also one that looks at the zeitgeist, reflects on that as well. This is Overdrive across Australia. Say, Barry, so where is Gross Klockner? That's in Austria. It's a thing called a high alpine road, and it's near the Grossglockner mountain, which is the highest mountain in Austria. It's a road that runs north-south, south-north, depending which way you come from, below Salzburg. And, of course, it's up in the mountains, the Alps, and uh, it's an absolute epic bit of road. Pictures you have in your book of a rugged, snow-capped mountains, and uh, down a bit is a road of corkscrew layout. But it looks like it had a conga line of vehicles. Was there a bit of traffic around? Uh, it wasn't too bad. It was midweek, but it was during the summer, the northern summer. It'd be the only time you would drive it, to be honest. But what happened was we came from Italy up there overnighted and then came back the same road. So I wanted to drive it both directions. And uh, unfortunately, it rained late on the first day, set in overnight, and then the next day it was quite diabolical, you know so wet that the animals were starting to walk around in pairs. It was uh, perhaps diabolical, particularly for your good lady who sat beside you in all of these. I'll come to that later. If, uh, that it, the nice thing is, I think it's a, it's a toll road, which might uh, keep people off it a bit, but it's also wide in spots you can overtake. That's what sets it apart from a lot of the alpine roads in Europe, is that it, it, it's, it's, it's quite wide and the curves are more um, open open radius so more so than than the hairpin roads you get on a, on a lot of those type of roads and the surface is just just beautiful you know it's as smooth as a it's a good hot hot mix surface as good as you'd get on a racing circuit there were sections originally that were very old cobblestone i believe yeah they were they were it goes back a long way and um it was used for motorsport in, you know, prior to World War Two, when the uh, the German car makers of Auto Union and Mercedes, because Auto Union became uh, Audi as we know it, 
and they had these massive silver arrows cars, you know, these oh, huge things on running on about three-inch wide tyres, but putting out V V12s, V16s, things like that, that, you know, putting out massive horsepower for the day. Hill climbing in those sort of cars was just as popular, I think, in those days as it was as was uh, circuit racing. There's no guardrail, but in Australia, you occasionally see a plaque to the convicts who built an old road. On this one, there's also a memorial to those who built the road. What was that about? Oh, yeah, well, it, it was pretty risky, you know, a lot of dynamiting, I suppose, and, you know, like uh, massive labour force numbers, you know. So I guess guys were... Uh, it was pretty risky business as well as, you know, you're dealing with altitude and, and the weather and I suppose, you know, pretty uh, pretty push-on sort of approach to doing it all. So so there were casualties, that's for sure. And it's lovely that they have a monument to it. Just finally, what were you driving? Uh, a little uh, thing called a Renault Sport Clio RS220. The 220 stood for horsepower and it was the trophy version. Now... The Renault hot, hat- hot hatches like Megane and uh, Clio, they tend to run them in three um, three stages of, of uh, performance. There's the uh, Sport, the Cup, and then the Trophy. Well, I just happened to have the Trophy, which was uh, the full Monty. And it was an ideal little car for those sort of roads because, you know, you had Brembo brakes, uh, driver mode settings, you know, so you could uh, really firm the suspension up and... The, and uh, sensitised the steering, it had sports seats, Recaro sports seats, and, you know, a punchy little engine, only 1.6 litres, but, you know, in a, in a what you call a light car, that's probably uh, as good as you want. You don't have to go to pure exotica to have a lot of fun? No, you don't. And the beauty of this was, it was part of, there's quite a few companies involved with this, so I won't name drop, but if you get online, there's, there's quite a few ways you can lease a brand new French car, uh, you know, either Citroen, Renault or Pe- Peugeot, when you do these European uh, holidays. And uh, I leased the little Clio for, what was it now, 30 days. I think that's about the minimum you can lease, but you can lease up to about three months. And it gets cheaper as you go on. And it's, it's very reasonable. And, you get a brand new car com- with with full insurance, brake and service, no extra charge for a second driver. So you know you're not renting trouble. Like when you pick that car up, it's it's just as it would have left the showroom. Did you tell them what your career had been? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't ask, so that's up to them. Oh no, no. In fact, in fact, because. You know, most people rent things like people movers or economical cars, you know, uh, for these road trips. I was a bit of an oddity in, in booking this little performance car. So when I picked it up in Nice and when I returned it in Geneva, both times, you know, the, the people there that uh, handled the situation for me, uh, they thought it was great that, you know, they had one of these little pocket rockets to deliver. So they seemed nearly as enthused about it as I was. All right, Barry, how can I get your book? Ah, yes. Well, uh, you can get it through me at the moment with the COVID situation. I haven't been able to establish any, get it in any bookstores yet. But if I can give you something as simple as an email address, yep. uh, we can go from there. So my email is 
Green BW, that's Green Barry Williams, so Green BW, 1953 at gmail.com. All right. So if anyone's interested, they can just sling you that. What's it cost? Postage anywhere in Australia is $55. All right, mate. I appreciate that greatly. Thanks very much. Good. Thanks, David. Cheers. This is Overdrive across Australia. This week we drove the all-new Kia Nero EV Sport. Kia Nero is ideally sized as an urban runabout and with a fully electric version, helping to reduce localised emissions. Nero Sport is loaded with standard features and apart from the fact it's fully electric, you really wouldn't notice anything different. Nero is comfortable, quiet and once you get the hang of the driving difference, it's smooth. But it takes a while to adapt to the immediate engine braking. The EV Nero can be driven in four selectable drive modes, each of which changes certain characteristics including air conditioning function and the electric motor torque profile. The driver can choose default settings for climate control and energy recuperation level for each mode through the infotainment screen. One key factor in getting buyers into the fully electric version is the acceptable range of around 450 kilometres. It obviously changes depending upon driving style and conditions, but that range meant, for example, we could go a full week without recharging as we only drove around 50 kilometres a day. That is the real benefit of an urban electric vehicle. Price from around $66,000 plus the usual costs. I'm Rob Fraser. This is Overdrive across Australia. The Audi A7 Sportsback is a large four-door passenger car with a flowing fastback style. The S7, same body, but it has a twin-turbo V6. But the RS7 is a rocket ship. Same body, but powered by a four-litre twin-turbo V8 with huge horsepower and other features. Now, if you've got something with style and a little bit of elegance... And a bit of bling, who better to talk about that than our good friend from Gay Cowboys, Alan Zervis. G'day, Alan. David, as always, you're far too kind. You felt at home in the RS7? Wow, what a beast. Do you know, it felt as comfortable as the rest of the A7s or A5s or, uh, you know, the RSs. It felt the same comfort, but it wrapped around you. It was just magnificent. And had all the technology of digital displays, mood lighting and those things. It reached the Audi level that you would expect there, didn't you? But it also had a pretty high-performance engine. Well, I'd describe the sound. Uh, we took these cars out on a racetrack earlier in the year, and I described the sound as they went past as filthy. And that's the only way I could describe it. It was just, it just got right into you. 441 kilowatts, 800 newton metres of torque, all-wheel drive and all-wheel steering. It bleeps the engine for you when you start up, bit of a hoon factor, and it roars when you accelerate. But unlike the V8s of the past, it was remarkably smooth and quiet at idle and sedate city driving. Well, I don't know about you, but I almost felt that the surge of power was almost like one of the high-powered Teslas. It was instant and smooth and linear, and there was no, you know, that that rumbly vibration. There was none of that. It was just, as you say, a rocket ship. It was a little different from the first V8s I drove, which were probably built around the late 60s and early 70s. I might have driven them later than that, but that's when I got into it. They were ones that 
at Idol, they were like a young teenager with ADHD. They were fidgety and blipping and farting around. Well, David, you've got to remember that those engines were probably designed another decade or two before that. The Audi tell us, of course, that this V8 has a lot of technology, including special plasma-coated cylinder linings. The 1969 Monaro V8 never had that, I don't think. I don't think it did. You'd be lucky if it had air conditioning and a radio, David, never never mind plasma-coated, uh, you know, foxtails on the, on the rear aerial. Tell you what, though, you, it did have that sophisticated surge to it, but there was a little bit of the old V8 in that it lifted its nose a bit and, and roared away. I, I had a little bit of a flashback, albeit in much more comfort. Unfortunately, David, when you do that, though, it drinks like a drag queen. Thank you, Alan. <laughs> it was disconcerting when, if you just moved it around a bit, it showed that the immediate fuel consumption was around 30 or 40 litres per hundred. It got better, of course, but around the city, I think it's rated 15 or more, 16. And I think, uh, you know, you wouldn't need to breathe on the accelerator too much to make it head north of that. Alan, the A7 Sportsback starts at $105,000. Now, the RS7 is two and a half times the power. How many shekels are in uh, buying one of these, Alan? Well, David, this is where it gets a little bit muddy. The website says it was around, what, 183000 or something, but the information they gave us on that uh, little cheat card was two twenty four base price, 11 grand's worth of extras, taking us to two thirty five plus on-roads, so at least another $40,000 in on-roads. The on-roads is significant. I would think that the luxury car tax would be at least $37,000. And the stamp duty, and that'd be ten. I, yeah, I think you'd be adding at least fifty thousand dollars to get it on the road. I agree. We're talking at least a quarter of a million dollars. But you know, David, I, the question is, does it drive like a quarter of a million dollars? And my question to you would be, well, for show me something that costs less that drives as well. A quarter of a million dollars is worth so much to me that I could never either afford it or justify it. But to someone who had more disposable income, hey, it's a drop in the ocean. And I think the other thing too is that it's it's everything that it promises and more. And you look at the back lights and they do a little dance as they start up and the headlights of the laser beam LEDs. I mean, it's just an extraordinary piece of equipment. has a lot of technology in it. And uh, thank heavens that it also has adaptive cruise control as standard. Some Audis haven't, maybe still don't at, at present, which I think is uh, ridiculous. Alan, uh, maybe next week we'll talk about uh, the uh, fastback shape, but in something that is more affordable. Let's do that. And that's Alan Zervis. Thank you, Alan, for your time. He is from Gay Carboys, and he gives us his opinion on those cars, which A, you can afford, or B, you would like to think you could afford. Overdrive. If you have a question, suggestion, or comment, send an email to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au.
upgraded their midsize Fortuna late in 2020 with the engine we should have had all along. Based on the Hilux, the Fortuna four-wheel drive wagon has been a successful Toyota and the top-range Crusade is aiming at buyers that want four-wheel drive capability along with a higher level of luxury. Fortuna now has 150 kilowatts of power and 500 newton metres of torque from its 2.8 litre engine and it really shows both on and off-road as well as better fuel economy. It retains this selectable four-wheel drive system as well as the six-speed automatic transmission. Towing capacity is now 3,100 kilos and comes with a standard rear diff lock. The Crusade includes heated leather eight-way power adjustable front seats, Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, front and rear climate controlled air conditioning, LED fog lights, roof rails, leather look steering wheel and a premium 11 speaker JBL audio system. I've driven the Fortuna on outback roads, on the beach, forest trails, heavy duty four-wheel drive tracks. I've towed with it and driven it on freeways. It's a great all-round four-wheel drive. This has been Overdrive. My thanks to Brian Smith and Barry Green, Alan Zervis, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. There's more information at drivenmedia.com.au, including past programs, which are also a podcast via iTunes or Spotify. Or there's our Facebook site, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>